This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast for everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level. You came to the right place. I'm your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, Chinese blogger, and I'm not sure how many problems I have because math is one of them. My co-host is John Passon, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of Allset Learning, the Chinese Grammar Wiki. Sinosplice.com and is semi-fluent in Klingon. In this episode, John and I discuss the fallacy of the search for the perfect book to learn from and strategies to bridge the gap between intermediate to advanced Chinese. Guest interview is with Rakesh Amaran. A pretty face lured him into learning Chinese, and I'm pretty sure it helped him put a ring on it too. All this and more. Let's get to it. Hi guys, I'm Jared Turner. Hey everybody, my name is John Pasden. All right, John. Podcast number seventeen. It's a prime number. So, John, what are we talking about today? All right. So today,、um, I want to talk about something that I used to think a lot about as I was learning Chinese, especially at like the intermediate level, which was、um, I used to really like to go to bookstores because there's a pretty good variety of books for learning Chinese here in Shanghai. There would almost always be some, you know, new shiny book. It、looked really good. Open it up. Has some interesting stuff in it. So、um, I'd figure this is just what my Chinese needs. And you know, I take it home, study it a little bit. But before too long, it would end up on the bookshelf. And if you look at the bookshelf, there are actually a lot of books just like that. Where you know, I thought, oh, this is the book I need. And I just kept getting books, reading a little bit, put them on the bookshelf. And I just didn't go back to those books nearly enough to really master what was in them. So you're accumulating material, but you're not, I guess, learning from it. What I mean, what's happening? You're just just sitting on the bookshelf. Yeah. So rather than buckling down and doing the work to to learn what is in any of those books, assuming that they're all pretty decent books, I'm putting the problem somewhere else. Like, oh, if I just had the one, the one book that would make my Chinese perfect, the one book that could attract me forever, you know, the one book that has everything the other books don't have. But、um, in reality, that book doesn't exist. When you're talking about this, a, a few things come to mind. I think that there's a probably a couple aspects to this. One, I think there's things that distract us. Maybe we want to sit down and watch Netflix or browsing Reddit or whatever. But there's also the other thing of that、uh, we buy the book, right, and then but we don't get out of it what we're looking for, or maybe it's too hard. What is what are your thoughts about that? Well, definitely, there's the there's the、uh, problem of getting a book and it turning out to be too hard. Like we talked before about. Trying to buy Chinese children's books and study that, and it's almost always the case that those are too hard.、Uh, and then there's also the issue of you know, like with a textbook, after you've been studying it for months on end, and it's just more of the same over and over. Of course, you're going to get bored with that. So everybody appreciates variety, and I think that should definitely be part of anyone's studies. But when buying the new book becomes kind of an addiction. And you're not really making any progress, then you need to kind of step back and assess the situation, right? Yeah, to me, it seems a little bit like analysis paralysis. And I sometimes, you know, when I open up Netflix and I want to watch a, some movie, you know, I'm overwhelmed by choices or something, right? And then I end up spending like a half an hour picking out the movie that I want to watch, or maybe a short documentary, and I could have watched a whole show or something during that time. I was trying to pick out something to watch. Yeah, and like you might have analysis paralysis if you have this bookshelf full of books and you're not sure which one's the best one. But I think what I'm talking about is is even more similar to like dating. Like you know, young people they want to find the one, the perfect person, 
And then they go on a date with someone, a few more dates, and they're like, oh, they're not perfect. We're not totally compatible. They're not the one. And then they like decide not to date that person any, anymore and they keep going and try to find someone else. And uh, what most people will tell you when it comes to relationships is that being with someone is a choice, right? You choose that person, they choose you, and then you stick with it. And I think the same thing is true for uh, a lot of study materials. So I guess, is that the course of action you're suggesting on this? Is that, hey, you maybe are looking for that perfect book, but obviously it doesn't exist, but you should study what you have. Is that what you're suggesting? Well, you got to make sure what you have is good. Um, You know, it can't be a terrible book. Just like in a relationship, you don't commit and stay in no matter what when it turns into an abusive relationship, because, you know, sometimes some of these textbooks do feel pretty abusive at times. (laughs) Well, this brings to mind something that I think a lot of intermediate and upper intermediate learners uh, have, an issue that they, they, they come across. And this is when you've gone through all that easy material, even, for example, like our Mandarin Companion Grader readers. You know, we only right now have up to level two, but, you know, you, you have like this. Uh, there's some other materials out there that could be a little bit higher level, but there comes to a point where you've got this gap when you've studied all the materials that are written specifically for learners and there's nothing left between that last jumping off point and authentic Chinese literature. This brings to mind, I, actually, while you were talking about this, John, I pulled up this email I got from Peter Samet. You know Peter, right? He was one of your clients at Allset, right? Yeah, yeah. And he was asking about uh, this exact issue that, hey, you know, I've been studying all the stuff. When we talk about comprehensible input, that it's often described as your level plus one. And he finds out when he gets to this point that I'm describing, material that's like your level plus one is very difficult to find. And he feels like the stuff he can find is like his level plus 10. You know, he's kind of exaggerating. And he says that he spends more time looking for things than he actually does studying. How does that all relate to kind of what we're talking about here for someone in this position? Well, there are a couple of issues here. Once you get to a pretty high level, pretty much all the new vocabulary you learn is relatively low frequency. And even if you want to focus on the highest frequency stuff, it can be difficult to identify what those words are. But um, if you think about learning a language, you know, acquiring all the, the vocabulary and grammar as kind of filling an upside down pyramid, uh, you can imagine the bottom of the pyramid is where the point is and it fills up pretty quick if you're pouring water in. But if you keep pouring at a constant rate, it'll be filling up more and more slowly, right? Because the additional vocabulary you need and, you know, grammar and everything else to really level up becomes more with each level that you go up. Uh, Are you following me? Yeah. Okay. So once you get pretty high, if you're still just pouring in, you know, a little bit of water and you're trying to level up all the way across the board, that means you're learning, you know, this obscure word here, that obscure word there. You're probably putting them into some kind of spaced repetition flashcard system so you never forget them. But in reality, you're spreading yourself pretty thin and you're probably not practicing much of that language at all. So you're probably going to get to this point where you keep learning all this obscure vocabulary and you're and you're reviewing it, but you're not really using it and you feel like you're treading water. So in this situation, the solution, which I've used a lot with clients and it works really well, is rather than trying to learn everything across the board, you really have to pick a focus. So rather than pouring water into this upside down pyramid, you can think of yourself as pouring sand. So you're, you're, you're building a little mountain, a little area of specialty, which is going to be higher than other you know, domains across the levels. So if you're focused on one thing, even though a lot of those words are not really high frequency words in general, 
they will be higher frequency within this topic. And if you just focus on that and keep reading different types of material within that same domain, then you're going to get the repetition you need uh, over time. And your level will go up in that domain and slowly your level will go up across the board. I think it's great to bring this up because I think our listeners intuitively understand this. Now, think about this. Like if you're registering for classes at a college or something, frequently they'll teach, you know, they have like Mandarin and be like one, two, three, four. But once you get up to those levels, then it's going to be business Chinese or it's going to be politics and Chinese or something like that. And and in those classes, you're going to be delving down like a specific uh, rabbit hole, if you will. But it, like you said, you're going to be building a pyramid as opposed to just filling a black hole with words that you can never stand on. You're building a little mountain on top of the pile of sand, which is in the inverted pyramid. It, pro- <laughs> it probably helps to see a picture for this, but uh, the leveling up is the inverted pyramid. And, and what you're describing is called you know, specialization. It's absolutely something that you want to consider when you get to a high enough level. If you don't do specialization, I'm trying to think, what would you be doing? You'd be like reading the news and just trying to remember every random word that comes up in every news article. And it's just not motivating, often not interesting, and not very effective. Well, I'm going to jump back over to this email I got from Peter, because he goes on to ask another related question that we are talking about right here. What he's saying is that as he reaches a higher level, he's encountering these low-frequency words. And to him, it feels like this huge barrier to fluency. And as he says, I'm going to quote, says, individually, they may not pop up that often, but collectively, they're all over the place. And because low-frequency words often pertain to the topic of conversation or text, they're often critical for understanding it. And he gives an example. Uh, He says, if I'm reading an article about aardvarks, and I don't know the words for aardvark, nocturnal, burrowing, or insectivore, I might be totally lost. And he's got a point there. But, uh, you know, leading back to what you're talking about, John, what you're suggesting is that if you want to build your vocabulary in animal behavior or insectology or, you know, mammals or aardvarks or whatever, then, you know, read those books and those low frequency words aren't necessarily going to be low frequency to you because you're going to be encountering them frequently. And as a result, you'll pick them up. Yeah, so my question for Peter would be, okay, why an article on aardvarks? Because if you chose it randomly and you're not that interested in it, well, that's the mistake right there. I I know that it's still hard to find a good article and it's hard to find something that's at the right level. But if you're not focusing on a particular interest, particular domain, a specialization, then you're always going to have this problem. And the worst thing to do is to force yourself to learn a whole bunch of low-frequency vocabulary that you're not going to use and you don't really care about. Like, that's terrible. Yeah, that's something that I feel like I've really picked up from the time we started this podcast, John. Is that like, I intuitively knew that you need to have a motivation and a reason. But, you know, as I've done all these interviews with people, it's been so apparent that everyone has to have some sort of motivation. That's something that keeps them learning Chinese. And I don't think we've interviewed anyone on this show who didn't have like a, a, a reason to continue studying Chinese. Because if they didn't, they wouldn't have been on the show because they never would have learned Chinese. 
and I've read this in some other case studies, uh, Stephen Krashen, he developed the input hypothesis, which is, you know, comprehensible input. He's actually a very purist in this area of comprehensible input. He'll even suggest that, hey, you know, if you only understand 50%, if you're really interested in it, go for it. If you're not interested in it, don't spend the time. And, and that's a middle of controversy in the, some of the, the among academics and some teachers in the area. But it is a good point that I have seen is that, you know, even if uh, you're at this intermediate level, And you're like, hey, I kind of feel stuck. I don't know where I'm going or I don't know how to move to that next level. And everything is, as Peter says, it's not my level plus one, it's my level plus 10. Well, you can handle that plus 10 if it's something you're very interested in and you're very motivated in. And and really, you know, if you do look around, you can probably find stuff that still is your level, maybe plus three and four or five. And with the right tools, you can still tackle it. You're going to go through a little bit of a painful process at some stage, but your motivation and your interest in the subject matter will carry you through. Yeah. And I plus one, um, I mean, it was really developed for language teachers. So, you know, the kids in the classroom aren't necessarily super motivated to learn Spanish or Chinese or whatever. Sure. The textbook writers do their best to make the textbooks fairly interesting, but you know, the, the material the kids are learning or adults is not tailored to their interests. So I plus one does not really take into account special motivation for the material being studied. So, yeah, it's hard to say where that balance is, like how much can motivation offset higher difficulty or more unknown words? I I don't know. It's hard to say, but definitely the motivation helps a ton. I also think back to an article I had written on our Manor Companion blog maybe four or five years ago. And in that article, I relate a story of a guy in Shanghai, and he had been there for maybe a couple months, and he was really interested in learning Chinese. And he showed me what he was doing. He had the biography of Jack Welch in Chinese. Jack Welch, he's the famous CEO of GE. And he'd gone through maybe three pages, three or four pages, and I'm telling you, there were just like notes and characters, like, you know, definitions everywhere, written all over the margins of the page. And he was proud that he'd gotten through about four pages. I asked him, well, how long did it take you to do this? And it was, I mean, it was probably like six or seven hours. So he was just spending an inordinate amount of time getting through this. In, in my article, I suggest that, hey, you know, we should read at the right level. Now, in his case, he's an absolute beginner or a very early learner. That is not the best way to approach. I mean, you really are going to get more out of going to some much easier material, graded readers even. Even I suggest like our new breakthrough level, it's 150 characters. That's still not quite appropriate for a brand new learner. There's other things you want to go through first before you start getting to that. But that type of motivation can carry you through. And if that guy, if he had just stuck at that, you know, reading this Jack Welch biography, over time, I don't know how long it would have taken, maybe years, and if you keep going through books like this, he will attain a level of proficiency. He's going to start finally getting enough of these characters under his belt. It's going to start finally making sense to him, but it just might take longer for someone to do that. That's why I say there, there's a lot of ways to learn a language, and they all can work. It's just some are more effective than others. But there's also a high chance that frustration will kill his motivation. And that's exactly that's a very good chance for most of us. Very good. So the point I'm just making is that he can plow through it. And if he stayed motivated and if he was focused enough, he could learn that way. But it would be more effective to do it a different way to start with, you know, stuff with higher comprehension and then move on to that. But 
in the end, the point comes to is that you're going to have to make some sort of jumping off point. And in our last podcast, we interviewed Liz and she talked about this experience she had where she decided, hey, I'm going to start reading Harry Potter because she really liked Harry Potter. And there was a lot of hard vocabulary in there for her. But it was because she was so interested in the book, it carried her through. But she didn't start that at an, you know, at an elementary level. She was more of an uh, upper intermediate, possibly even advanced level before she tackled that. But it was still a stretch. Right. And as a result, she learned all the words about magic and muggles and so forth on the Harry Potter universe. So that was fun for her. Yeah, for me, I, I normally don't recommend Harry Potter unless you're a huge fan because there's just too much nonsense vocabulary. But, you know, if you're a huge fan, then maybe you want to know the Chinese versions of all those words. And she can talk about it with her Chinese friends. Okay, so going back to what we brought up in the beginning, uh, I call that the bookshelf problem. You're just randomly searching for something new, which is the magic silver bullet, which will level up your Chinese. When in reality, you need to focus on something that you're interested in. You know, make sure it's not bad, but then stick to it, right? We're obviously not against buying books. Mandarin Companion is a good choice, but uh, you need to find something that's the right level. It's practical and it's interesting to you and then stick with it. Well agreed, John. I agree. All right. Now we have a word from our sponsor and our sponsor is Mandarin Companion. All right. So today we're going to talk about our newest breakthrough level book. My teacher is a Martian. Yes, we just released this one a couple weeks ago. It's in our new breakthrough level. The whole book is written using only 150 basic characters, and the story is a lot of fun. John, you, we did talk about this in a previous podcast, but there's a lot of good Easter eggs in this one. It follows the story of two kids who are just convinced that their teacher must be a Martian. And why do they think he's a Martian, John? Well, they're seeing lots of weird things, like he eats his food instantly when they're not looking. He can somehow write with both hands at the same time while also reading something separate. On the way home, he disappears and doesn't seem to ever be in his house. Okay, that's enough. That's enough, John. Oh, sorry. That's sorry. enough. But but is he really a Martian? Well, you're going to have to read the book. Ah, rats. Okay. Well, get it today. You can get on Amazon, Kobo, iBooks. Get it out there wherever you get your books, you know, paperback or ebook. My teacher is a Martian, breakthrough level, 150 characters. Okay. And also, since you brought up Easter eggs, I mentioned last podcast that there's an interesting Easter egg in the Zhou Haisheng story. Did you find it, Jared? I don't think anyone found it. Is anyone talking about it? I, I didn't. I didn't look. I was on. I was on vacation. I was on a camping trip all last week, so I, I. I didn't look. All right. So again, that I'm challenging everybody. The Easter egg is related to Zhou Haisheng. That story, which is related to Emma, which is also related to Clueless. Those are your clues. Ah. Okay. And if you find the Easter egg, send us an email, and we'll give you a shout out here on the podcast. We have some reviews we're going to read. Um, I'm going to, we have a, gosh, we, we're getting a lot of reviews. So thanks guys. We really appreciate this. So I, I'm going to share this review. It's from James from Great Britain. His Chinese name is Xiaolang. Okay. He says, it's the best podcast for inspiration. This is the best podcast for Chinese learning motivation. And Mandarin Companion is the best graded reader series for learning to read Hanzi. So thanks there. The most recent episode of the podcast hit the nail on the head. I'm in China and studying HSK4. In my experience, listening is by far the hardest aspect of learning Chinese. Accents, word usage, and different ways of phrasing things makes it difficult to understand. I find myself guessing based on context. Thanks, James. 
All right, the next one is Dacia Ben Shung via Apple Podcasts in Germany. And he says, hit the den. Uh, finally, a podcast about how to learn Chinese and not just giving you a lesson on Chinese. These two chaps have created a podcast that is digestible and dynamic, full of witty quips and quippy wit. It is always fun to listen to. I love to listen to gain new insights on how to tackle learning Chinese. Keep up the amazing work, and I hope to hear many more podcasts to come. All right, and our next one is from Awarnold. <laughs> our next one is from Awarnold. Maybe it's like Arnold. Arnold Schwarzenegger, he's from the U.S. Entertaining podcasts and great books. No, that, I can't do it. All right. The podcast is great. Really enjoying it, as well as the books. I stumbled across Manor Companion, and I'm amazed at how fast my progress has been. I've been struggling to learn new vocabulary with one of the popular flashcard apps, which has been slow and less than exciting. The beauty of Manor Companion books is that they make picking up new vocabulary very natural and easy, as new words are repeated in the books within the context of an entertaining story, which makes studying fun. Can't thank you enough. Please keep them coming. Will from Washington, D.C. Thanks, Will, uh, or Awarnald. We appreciate that. Yeah, thanks. And uh, one more. So this is from Simon the Physicist in Great Britain. He says, really interesting podcast. Jared and John, I'm really enjoying these podcasts and really looking forward to more of them. The main reason I'm commenting is because what you were saying about books for Chinese children exactly matches my experience. Even books for very young children have me wasting so much time looking up unfamiliar and irrelevant words, and I totally agree about all the onomatopoeia. My tutor is Chinese, and she lends me children's books, and although she is great, I don't think she really gets why they are hard for second language learners. I was so happy to find the Mandarin Companion books. Although the language is more advanced than the little frog jumped in the pond, plop, I can read them much more fluently without having to look up words like frog and plop. The only downside is I'm listening to your podcast when I should be listening to Chinese, <laughs> but it's good to take a break and still be learning something about Chinese. Another comment. Several of the guests on the podcast have commented about how Chinese grammar is relatively easy and we don't have to worry about things like verb conjugation and genders. That's true, of course, but what about measure words? We don't have to worry about the gender of nouns, but we do need to worry about their measure words. Maybe you could discuss measure words in a future podcast? Hmm, not a bad idea. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about grammar. Um, you know, the Chinese grammar wiki is my baby. I try not to talk about grammar too much because it bores so many people to tears, but, uh, you know, I can. But in the meantime, regarding measure words, when in doubt, use guh. Yeah, that does work. <laughs> All right, now we have rants and raves. John, what do you have for us today, a rant or a rave? Okay, so I have a rave. You guys might not know this, but Jared is in charge of our marketing, which includes things like social media. And one of the things he's really gotten into recently is memes. Memes about learning Chinese. And some of them are really good. Like, uh, I've always liked memes, and I never imagined that uh, Jared would be such the meme master. Oh, man, shucks. Yeah, man. Good job. So um, <laughs> so we're posting these to the Instagram account, which is at Mandarin underscore companion, and also to our Facebook page, which is just slash Mandarin companion, no space or underscore. And uh, some of these memes are really fun. Uh, memes are all about empathy, right? And if you're learning Chinese, you can definitely identify with some of the emotions in these memes. Do you have a favorite one, John? Although one of the ones I just recently shared on WeChat was uh, where it's like when your phone number is 444-4444-4444 in Chinese. And then there's the, the image from Lord of the Rings with Saruman going, so you choose death. <laughs> 
you know, uh, my son, Miles, my 12-year-old son came up with that one. We kind of worked on a little bit together, but he ultimately came up with that. I was super proud of That's him. That's a good like, one. This is hilarious. Good job, Miles. <laughs> Memes fun. Memes fun. So check us out on Instagram, right? Okay. So Jared, do you have a rant or rave today? I have a rave. This is something I came across recently, and I thought this was utterly fascinating. John, this is probably old hat to you. You probably know all about this. But this is special women's only Chinese character script called Nu Shu. So this comes from the southwestern Hunan province. In this area, women had developed their own script, like their own characters. The men didn't know it, and it's something that they use to just communicate with each other. It looks, you know, a similar in nature. It's character-based, like, you know, Chinese characters are, but it's much more slender. It has a lot more phonetic elements to it, and it reflects the actual spoken language. So if someone were to read it out loud, it would sound just like reading Chinese characters, but only the women had shared the knowledge and knew how to read and write it. And so a lot of women, they wrote songs ballads, complaints, or stories, biographies. And it was really interesting because this text allowed women to express themselves in ways that wouldn't have been socially acceptable in the general society at the time. Uh, I think the last woman who had learned how to write this, she died, I think, 10 years ago. But there has been a movement to preserve this before the last writers of it had passed away. And uh, it's something that's kind of taught in a few areas and some universities. And, and it's, I think it's a really interesting thing that a group of women had developed their own language to communicate with each other that allowed them to express themselves in, in ways that weren't possible or weren't acceptable in that time. And so this area also, like the, they practice foot binding on women, which is rather... Gruesome. Uh, gruesome, right? Pretty much it crushed their feet over time and it would not heal. And so their feet would be very small and they couldn't do a lot of other work. We kind of inhibited their, their mobility quite a bit. Anyway, I think this was really interesting. So it's nu shu, nu, like woman, and then shu, like kan shu, a book. So nu shu. So if you want to take a look at that or research a little bit about it, you can find it. It's very interesting. I thought it was fascinating when I heard about this. And you, you can even find pictures and images of what the script looks like. It's, it's really neat. So that's my rave. It's really easy to find if you just do a Google images search with the Chinese. And one of the things that's cool about this is I think in a lot of ways, it's very similar to the evolution of hiragana, which is one of the phonetic scripts of the Japanese language. So if you're into Japanese, there's an interesting parallel there. Oh, really? Was there some sort of borrowing or, or correlation between the two? Yeah. So the Japanese phonetic scripts evolved out of Chinese characters, kind of a simplification it's, it's a bit bigger of a topic than we want to go into today, but uh, yeah, it's pretty interesting. So can you write this? Write what? New shoe. Uh, it looks pretty calligraphy-like. I mean, I could try to reproduce it, but I'm certainly no uh, master of new shoe. I've seen it years ago, but uh, don't know too much about it. John, you disappoint me. <laughs> we all have our limits, man. So my name is Rockish. I live in Dallas, Texas. I'm originally from Texas. Spent my whole life here. Don't let his name fool you. I'm sure when he's out on the streets, he uses howdy and y'all with reckless abandon. I work as an actuary. Some people know what that is. Some people don't. Let it be known, this is the first time we've interviewed an actuary. They are those people who use complex math and the law of large numbers to figure out how much insurance should cost. So, and I've been studying Chinese for nine years. 
Unlike many people we've interviewed on the show, Rakesh has never lived in China, although he has traveled there on a few occasions. He learned Chinese while living in Texas, and although, as you'll hear in the interview, his wife is from China, for him, learning has become more of a personal pursuit. He shares with us how he did it. Stay with us. I'd like to know, like, why did you start studying Chinese? So I started dating my now wife when we were both in school. You know, we were studying the same program when we were living in Houston, Texas. She's originally from China. She's from Shenyang. So she had come to the U.S. to study. She, she didn't ask me to do it, but I was interested in learning some Chinese. I thought it would help me better connect with her, with her culture. So that's how it originally started. As I started to study it, I personally just realized that I found studying Chinese very fun and enjoyable. I had studied other languages before Chinese in high school and college. I always got to a point where I felt like I couldn't progress. And so there were certain things that I found challenging that in some sense were actually easier in, I felt in Chinese. So for example, verb conjugation, things like that. Mm -hmm. So I, I found it enjoyable. So I continued to study it on my own. And then later when things became more serious and we got married and I met the in-laws, for example, who don't speak English, knowing some Chinese was critical to being able to communicate with them. Mm -hmm. And so it just sort of progressed from there. Well, I, I, I want to back up. Do you have any great story how you met your wife? Not really. We, I mean, we were both in the same classes. It was a very small master's program. There were, I think, maybe 12 students. No, we, we, I mean, there wasn't anything too exciting. I, I was interested in her. I, I asked her out and she was somehow open to it. So that's, that's where it started. And then after the first year, I did an internship actually in Dallas. So we were separated. And that's when I first started studying Chinese. So I went to oh, okay. the bookstore and bought an, an audio series. And that's how I started. So that summer, I started listening. So I want to understand that connection. So you, at that point, were you dating her or were you just kind of interested in her? We, no, we were, yeah, we were dating at that point. Yes. Okay. And so, you, hey, I want to take this to the next level. I'm going to start learning some Chinese. Right. Gotcha. So how did that work out then? So you said you first, you got a textbook and what did you do? Well, it was, it was an audio. So it was a series of, of CDs that I could listen to in the car. I basically just studied when I was driving to and from work or, or driving around because I was basically by myself in Dallas. So I had a lot of free time. Um, I would listen in the car or sometimes at home. And I was, I was very passive. I wasn't writing anything down. I wasn't really going beyond that at any point. I was just absorbing because at that point, the language felt very new and, and, and unique. And so I was still, I think, wrapping my head around the different sounds and, and the tones and things like that. So, all right. How did that work out for you at that stage? I thought I knew a lot of Chinese at the end of the summer. And then when I went back to school and I said, oh, I started learning Chinese. And then I said a few words and I'm sure I butchered the pronunciation. But again, my now wife was was very encouraging. And she she said, that's great that you're studying. And I think I knew 100 words or maybe 200 words, and I thought that was a lot. It is a good start. But then at some point, I, I sort of stalled out. So that's when I started to look for some other resources to continue improving my Chinese. Now, did she help you at all along the way? She would, she would help with questions. Whenever I had a question that I couldn't figure out or find an easy answer to, I would ask her. At the same time, I tried not to pester her with questions. If I really needed her help to answer the question, I would ask her. But I would still try and try and answer it myself and maybe confirm it with her because I feel like I would understand it better that way if I 
sort of came to an understanding on my own, mm. if, if that makes sense. Yeah. So did you ever speak with her at all at this point or practice your Chinese with her? It's hard to remember. I think I probably spoke a little bit, but my vocabulary was so limited that, you know, I would use a Chinese verb and then the rest would be English or, or something to that level, extent. So you got a little bit of Chinese, maybe a couple hundred words. And um, what happened from there? So then I don't, I don't know how I found it, but I found out about Chinese pod. At that point, I, I really liked the system and I liked the dialogues. So I, I spent a lot of time listening to the Chinese pod dialogues. I think I was doing the beginner level, maybe elementary, I think it's what it's called. So I was listening to those dialogues. I was trying to write down the vocabulary. I had physical flashcards that I was writing down the words on. And then at one point, I started to sort my cards into easy and hard. So the easier cards I would review you know, every week, the hard cards I would review every day or every few days. And so based on that, I at some point got into using Anki for flashcard repetition. So basically, I was studying dialogues in, through ChinesePod, taking the vocab or the sentence structures, putting them into Anki, and then kind of reinforcing that way. I basically just kept doing that for, for I mean, for years. And but were you speaking at this point? Were you, did you have any opportunities to use your language? A few. I mean, so we went to China a few times, so I definitely had opportunities to use my language there. I remember the first time we went to China, at that point, I felt somewhat comfortable to speak with my wife in, in Chinese, you know, for in simple situations. But once we got to China and, you know, we were out and about, I couldn't understand, you know, the majority of what people were saying. I think younger people, I was able to understand a little bit more easily because I think their pronunciation was more similar to what I had studied. Whereas older people and who I think have a little bit of a different accent, I really struggled to understand what they were saying. So that was that was a challenge, but also it was nice to know that there were still opportunities where I was able to communicate in Chinese and I, I realized I was progressing. Did you go up to Shenyang? We did. Yeah. So we went for our wedding reception. Oh, okay. Well, that, I, hey, at this point you decided to get married, right? So yeah, I remember I wrote a very, very, very short speech. I don't know if speech is even the right word. It was maybe three sentences or four sentences that I wanted to say in Chinese. I think I wrote it myself. I had my wife check it and I, but I can remember now just thinking about it. It was all, I can just see all the pinion, like, you know, with the the little, the tone lines on there. Mm -hmm. And then I think at the reception, I think I memorized it, but it's, yeah, it's hard to remember it, to be honest. Probably a nervous time as well. For sure. <laughs> well, I'm interested to also understand here about how did your Chinese or at least learning Chinese, how did it help you to uh, connect with her parents and with your in-laws? Yeah, my, my in-laws would come to visit us at least every year. And they would spend, you know, a few weeks here at least. And then once they started to retire, they would actually spend more time here. I think last year they were here for almost four months. Oh, wow. So being yeah. able to communicate with them is is critical, especially because if they need something, they don't drive here. So if they need something or if they need to go somewhere or if there's a problem at the house, we have to be able to communicate at least, you know, in the basics to live together. And do they speak English at all? No. They don't speak any English. My father-in-law studied English in college, so I think he can understand a little bit or he can read a little bit, but they don't They don't really speak English. Tell me a little bit more about your experience in like, using Chinese, okay? When you've been back, you went back to China. How many times have you been there? 
I've been three times in total. Okay, all right. I think the first time was in 2012, and then most recently I went last year. So I, I want to hear a little bit about that, about your experience, like using Chinese in China. So you told me, I mean, you got there and you're like, ah, I can't understand anyone what they're saying. And and also just for our listeners in, in Shenyang, that's in the northeast of China. So an area we call Dongbei. It's a little bit north. It's kind of the Great White North a little bit up there. I was both nervous, but it was also kind of exciting to be speaking Chinese um, with with my wife's family, they were very you know they were very friendly. So I would any effort I made, they would be very encouraging. And the typical response where they they really praise you for saying like one word, yeah, ni hao, oh ni de zhongwen hen hao, right? <laughs> exactly. But then when we were outside of that environment, when we were you know at the mall or at a restaurant, I, I think in terms of reading, I couldn't really read anything at the time, but I could at least order simple things, and so that was exciting. Because before that, just studying at home in the States, I wasn't sure if I was really making much progress or not. It's it's really hard to to gauge that. When you're in that environment and you're forced to use the language, it's only then that you realize what you've learned. And, you know, in, in some sense, you also realize what you can still learn and how you can improve. It sounds like you, you have a, a, an understanding, a base in the language at that stage. And what's kind of helped you move forward and progress in your proficiency in Chinese? So I think the next big development for me was trying to learn characters. When I first started studying Chinese, I sort of wrote it off and said, you know, those characters are way too complicated for me. I'm just going to ignore reading and writing. And I don't think I had really thought to make the distinction at, at the time that one can learn to read Chinese and, and learn to recognize characters. And you don't necessarily have to know how to write them. So I think once I made that connection, and I, I probably discussed it with my wife, um, is it th- it's at that point that I started to actually try and learn characters. And again, just by recognition, I didn't try and write them. Once that progressed for maybe a year or so, I think that's when I downloaded my first graded reader. And I got it on, on Kindle, which is very helpful because any word I didn't know, I could just you know tap on it and it would give me the definition. So previously, you had only been studying oral Chinese, no characters. Correct. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So this is great to hear that because there's been a lot of uh, studies to suggest that, hey, you know, if you don't learn the written language, it's going to really inhibit your language development. So it, that, that sounds like a, it's a case for you as well. You experienced that. For sure. And I, and I remember there were many instances where I would ask my wife a word and then I would say, oh, is this the same as that other word I know? A homonym, right? And she would say, yes, they are pronounced the same, but they're not the same word. In my mind, I was just thinking pinyin. So they looked exactly the same to me. And I just had to, would, had to think to myself, okay, these are actually two different words. But I had nothing to tie that concept to until I started learning characters. Okay, so you started learning characters. Now, what, how did that impact your language development? Just in terms of being able to practice. I, th- I think it helped my fluency overall, just being able to get a lot more input. So before that, again, I was mostly listening to audio dialogues when I was driving or, or doing things like that. But once I learned char- enough characters to do some simple reading, and you know, instead of reading my original English novels before I would sleep, I could just read a little bit of Chinese. So I was able to get in a lot more Chinese practice and exposure without feeling like I was, you know, necessarily spending a lot more time on it. It just felt like I was able to integrate it very naturally. Now, did you feel any change in your Chinese as you started reading? I don't know if I I really noticed it explicitly, like if I really picked it out. But just thinking thinking back upon 
instances where I was speaking in Chinese to my wife or my in-laws, I could see the improvement gradually from just continuing to expose myself to Chinese through reading and, you know, and listening. I really wanted to hear about your story because there's a lot of people who are studying Chinese, but they don't have that opportunity to go to China. And so in reading it, it's a little bit like immersion in a book, like immersion in your pocket. You know, you can just open it up and now you're immersed in Chinese just by reading. Exactly. And well, not everyone's married to a native Chinese person, but how did, how does she influence your Chinese? Well, she, she's obviously been very encouraging. Of, of any level of effort I put towards studying Chinese, she's been happy with it. I don't think she really expected me to study it or maybe expected me to continue on with it. Maybe she thought I would study it for a little while and maybe stop there. The, the source of why I started studying Chinese was because of her. But at this point, it's, it's separated from that. And I like to study Chinese just for studying Chinese's sake. So this ties into something else I'm curious to know about is like, what has been something that's carried you along here? I mean, obviously your wife is Chinese, but like she's like, even you pointed out, you could have given up. And I imagine there's some times where you felt maybe discouraged or you're like, ah, I'm never really going to get this language. What kept you along the path? What kept you studying Chinese? I think in the initial years, I just, I found it fun and I'm not sure if I can really explain why, but it's combining logic, but it's also combining the arts. Like you're having to learn these characters and how they can fit together and what their rules are. But then you're also learning how people can express themselves. And you're learning if you want to express a certain feeling, you might express it this way. So to me, it kind of combined both of those interests. And then later, once we had a, a daughter, it was very important to, to both of us that she learned to speak Chinese, if possible. Our efforts have been around trying to give her as close to a bilingual upbringing as, as possible, you know, to the extent that we can replicate that environment here in, in, in the States. What are you doing right now to help your daughter grow up in that bilingual environment? I guess the main thing is we, we try and only speak Chinese at home. So we, we've been doing that since she was born. Whenever we're um, not even when we're at home, any anytime we're with her, if my parents aren't around, you know, who might be not understand what I'm saying. Basically, we're, we're always trying to speak to her in Chinese. And now that she's older, she will speak to us in English sometimes, but we'll try and encourage her to speak in Chinese or pretend we don't understand her, still respond to her in Chinese. So she, she speaks both languages fluently. And I'm sure most of that is, is thanks to my wife, but I wanted to do my part to help maintain that environment for, for my daughter. Now, how does that stretching your Chinese skills? Because I imagine there's, you may come across some things, you don't know how to say it. So how do, you, how do you deal with that when you're trying to talk to your daughter and maybe you're not able to fully express yourself in Chinese? Well, one thing that's helpful is my daughter is used to the way I speak. So even though I may not speak with a standard pronunciation or I make I may have pauses where I'm really thinking about the right way to say something, or maybe I say it the wrong way. She knows me well enough that she knows what I'm trying to say. Uh, and now that she's older, there are occasions where I might even ask her how to say something. The other, the other thing is she we have a large library of Chinese books at home. So we try and read to her in English, but but mostly, if possible, in, in Chinese. So I've had to learn characters just from reading those books to her every day. There, there are characters that I've had to learn just so I can keep up with her. So you're reading to her. That's great to hear. Practice for you, and it's also helpful for her. Exactly. And I, I remember on an, another episode, you actually mentioned that reading out loud can be very beneficial for learning Chinese. And when I heard that, I thought, well, hey, I've been doing that already, thanks to my daughter. Well, how do you think it's helped you? 
It's definitely helped my fluency, both in terms of just speaking in general, but also I picked up vocabulary just from from those books. Maybe I was expecting something different, but the vocabulary in those books isn't as straightforward as as I was expecting a kid's book to be. Yeah, this is a very common thing. Overall, we recommend that people use graded readers and appropriate materials for second language learners because, you know, kids' books, they're difficult. <laughs> they're a lot more difficult than people would say. <laughs> Definitely. But, you know, I, this is something I always say is that you know, a lot of times the kids' books, the kids aren't actually reading these books. It's parents reading them for kids. That's right. The The other thing that I, I think is, is beneficial to reading kids' books or I found has been beneficial to me is oftentimes especially when I first started reading, you know, if I have, a, if we have a new book, I don't know half of the characters on the page, let's say, but there's a picture there. So I can use the Chinese I know to try and describe what's happening. And she has no idea if I'm reading the, the actual words on the page or as long as she buys what I'm saying, then I'm good to, to keep going. So you're kind of making up your own story as you go along, right? <laughs> right. Oh, that's clever. I, I, I like that. This is also something that I've talked to a lot of people about is that even if you're reading stuff that's above your level, what's most important is that you have that motivation to get through it. Because, right. you know, when you're reading at 60, 70 percent comprehension, your, your comprehension really suffers and it's hard and it's slow. But if you're really motivated, you can, you can get through it. And it sounds like that's something that's working out for you. Do you have a favorite kid's book in Chinese? I don't know if there's an English name, but there's a series called Shana and Lulu. And that one's pretty entertaining. I think it might be originally in Japanese, but was translated. Also, the Peppa Pig series is pretty good. The The situations in those books are very like slice of life, daily living type stories. So the vocabulary is not too complicated. Or if the vocabulary is new for me, it's something that I might actually use you know, in daily life outside of the book. Well, I'm curious, are there any other breakthrough moments you've had in learning Chinese where all of a sudden something just clicked? I think the most breakthrough feeling that I've had has been when I've tried to, or when I've, when I've gone back and reread a book, for example, a graded reader that I, I had read previously. I've, I've actually gone back recently and started to reread some of the graded readers I had bought years ago. And I realized I can just in reading that I can I can feel how much better my Chinese has become and how much more quickly I can read the pages. And I can just think back to the very first one I read and it was such a struggle to get through. And I think I took I had to take a break after the first one. But now I can I can read one in a couple hours and finish the story and um, have fun while doing it. Wow. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Occasionally I get emails asking about that very question. Hey, should I reread a graded reader? And your thoughts would be what? I would definitely recommend it. If you reread it immediately after, then maybe that's a different story. But if you have a few graded readers that you can cycle through, I think it's definitely worthwhile to go back and reread them. And you'll probably pick up some some words you didn't pick out the first time. Even if you know all the words, it's still good practice. It'll help your reading comprehension or your, your reading speed. So I would definitely recommend it. And I'm used to rereading books because I reread books to my daughter all pretty much all the time. All the time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I guess reading to kids, we always, you know, I've read this book 50 times to you. <laughs> right. But, but yeah, I think that's great to, that's great to hear from your perspective because, you know, I, I've experienced the same thing too. Sometimes I've gone back and reread something. It's like, wow, my, my comprehension is higher. Maybe even before I knew all the words, but now I even understand it better. 
and my reading speed. I, I always keep talking about reading speed is a big indicator of progress. Right. And when you can go through and read something like fluently, you know, it's it's that's a big deal. Right. Going back, if you could go back and talk to yourself when you first started learning Chinese, what, what advice would you give to yourself or what would you say? I think the biggest thing is like if I could go back, I would say it's okay not to start characters immediately, but it's probably something that I would have started sooner knowing what I know now. I guess learning characters and then hopefully reading at an, at an earlier date, I think would have given me more of a heads up on get, gaining fluency. So characters, that's a drum we keep banging here all the time. Yeah. So basically, in, in hindsight, I could have started the character sooner. Maybe I should have, but I'm glad I did it at some point. By helping your daughter learn Chinese and, and raising her in a bilingual environment, what do you hope for your daughter? My hope is that by her being able to speak Chinese, it, it will help her and, and me keep her connected to that part of her, her background. It's, you know, it would be very easy to grow up here and not speak Chinese and just have a typical American existence. But I want her to have that connection to her mom's culture. And I want her to be able to travel to China and be comfortable when she's when she's older and be able to communicate. And would you have any other advice for someone who's learning Chinese in their home country, but doesn't have that opportunity to go to China? I think the opportunities to listen to Chinese or practice speaking Chinese aren't maybe as easy to come by. They're not just directly right there if you don't live in China. But if you're motivated, there are plenty of opportunities to practice Chinese. You can connect with people online. You can speak with them through your phone or online. So I think there, there are ways to achieve it if it's important to you. But you might have to do some research to find those opportunities. Or marry a Chinese person that works too. Or marry a Chinese person. <laughs> Either or. <laughs> you have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousin, pharmacist, secretary, actuary, locksmith, phlebotomist, engineer, and that one guy named Scott. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at mandarincompanion.com. Apologies to John Cena, we just ran out of time. The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, yep, just me, Jared Turner. I'd like to thank Rakesh Amaran and my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Passon. See you next time.